Hello and welcome to episode 104 of the NFL Scotland podcast. The summer months are in full swing, we're starting to see sport come back and we're very focused on the NFL being back in our lives. My name is Cameron Hobbs. And my name is Paul Mitchell. Preparations continue in America to get the season to start on time. Whether that will happen or not, we still don't know. We'll be talking about that in the months ahead. We've been making the most of people having a little bit of extra time in their diary by lining up some cracking interviews. And we've got another belter for you in episode 104. Yeah, he's a well-known person. You'll know the name. He's terrific to have, and we're delighted that he's finally able to join us here on the NFL Scotland podcast. Yes, if you've watched the NFL in the UK, then you will know this man. He is synonymous with coverage of American sports here. Please welcome Mike Carlson. Thank you for joining us, Mike. Good evening. I'm very happy to be here. It's the next best thing to being in Scotland. In fact, <laughs> when I when I told my dog I was going to do the NFL Scotland podcast. It started raining outside. <laughs> we like that as a tribute. Mike, we've, we've done over 100 episodes. We, we felt we had to try and get into our stride before we got you on. So we're delighted. <laughs> yeah, I'm, glad I, I'm glad I was a priority. <laughs> <laughs> no, we needed to get it right before you came on. That, that was for sure. Delighted that, that you do join us. Mike, people know you from radio and television, and that's mostly what I want to talk about is radio and TV and, and, sure. and journalism. One of the things that I often find fascinating is when you read somebody's biography or how they got into the business, they almost ignore that great first break that you've got to get, you know, because everything's more interesting further down the line. But what was your big break either into writing or broadcasting? What, what was well, it, it was, there were two really, um, because when I came to this country, I, I was really considering teaching, um, but I had, I had written before, and um, in fact, I had done my master's thesis in in creative writing, and I was looking around, and I went down to Fleet Street, and I tried to talk my way into a job, and I got into the offices of UPI, United Press International, which was a TV new, which was a news agency at the time, and the editor and I, a guy called Mike Keats, hit it off. And he tried to give me a job at the time because they needed someone on the sports desk, which was perfectly okay with me. And um, the sports editor wouldn't hire me. He, and he later became a friend of mine because we wound up working in the same kind of area. And I asked him about it and he said, I was never going to hire anybody who wasn't my choice. I wasn't going to let Mike Keats hire somebody for me. And I said, fair enough. So anyway, um, he couldn't give me a job, but, about a week later, I got a phone call from a guy who was the editor at UPITN, which was a TV news agency that UPI ran jointly with ITN and was based at ITN in London. And he offered me a part-time you know, fill-in job as a scriptwriter for the summer. And so I started doing that. Years later, when I was the shop steward, a couple, two years later, not, not, not like a long time, I was the shop steward for the NUJ, the National Union of Journalists, and I was doing the night shift as the night editor, which was a fancy title for basically just being there all night and, and sending all the shipping advisories for the news film that we sent out. Um, and so I went in the editor's office and, and you know, went through his files to, to see who was informing him about what, 
we said at our union meetings, <laughs> although I knew anyway, but just to look at his expense bills from the local trattoria. And, um, and I found my file and, and he, there was a note from him to Mike Keats saying, um, you know, I rang, I, uh, I sent this guy a note and he must've been on the phone to me before the postman got down the walk. <laughs> I said, ho, ho, ho. Yeah. Um, so anyway, um, so I worked there and, I had I would I had risen to the point of producing producing the um, daily satellite feed, which went to New York, and then New York would distribute it in the states and pass it on to Asia, and um, and Australia and the Antipodes. So um, at one point we were we were picking up BBC cricket coverage, and sending that down to um, Australia to Channel Nine, and. I had an Australian guy working in the newsroom and he was supposed to be doing the script for the news film, which we did right on the telex machine. So you would write the script onto the telex machine and then it would be telexed over to the, and, and we were late and he wasn't getting it done. He'd been sitting there for an hour and I started yelling at him. And finally I just pushed him out of the seat and I sat down and typed on the telex machine, uh, the cricket story and, and we sent it off and everything was fine. The next day, the same editor calls me into his office and says, I saw what you did with John Ayers yesterday. And I said, oh yeah, I'm really sorry. I shouldn't have lost my temper, blah, blah, blah. And he said, oh no, I don't care. I don't care about that. He said, um, how can you write a cricket story? <laughs> and I, I said, well, it's easy. You know, cricket's a game. Games are easy to understand. And he said, well, I'm Welsh. You know, and I don't understand cricket. And I said, well, you know, that's the way it goes. He said, do you want to be our sports editor? <laughs> And we didn't have a sports editor. The other news agency, Viz News, which the BBC ran, had a sports editor and they killed us on sports stories. So um, I said, does it mean a raise? And he said, yeah, OK. And uh, so I said, sure. And I became the sports editor. So that that was kind of break number one, um, that that combination uh, of things. And um, Can I give you a sidebar? Yes, please. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. As sports editor. Um, like two years later, a year later, um, the Australians came over on the 1981 cricket tour and they were, the opening match was always against the Duke or Duchess of Norfolk's 11, um, and was held at Arundel Castle in, in, um, Sussex. So it wasn't being covered. So I got a cameraman and I went down there to do coverage as a special for channel nine. And, um, you know, we're doing it on film. So you, you have to choose your moments to record because your your canister of film only has um, 10 minutes on it, 240 feet or whatever it was, and uh, two minutes, 40 seconds. Um, anyway, we got lucky. We got a couple of wickets. We got a couple of nice shots. We, we edited. I went back and I did a stand up um to close it out you know and so the uh, australians opened their tour with a win over the dutch of norfolk's 11 by an innings and and 30 runs or whatever the, mar the margin was you know and for national nine news i'm mike carlson at arundel castle in sussex i thought that they would you know they'd go crazy for this so we edited it together we sent it out on the satellite feed and when i get in to work the next day um there's a telex from them saying don't ever have that guy do a cricket story for you again <laughs> whoops <laughs> so so we go in the we go in the room and we put it on the stain back and we're looking at the film and I, I can't see what's wrong with it you know there's no mistake no visible mistake in it and um i call the itn sports editor up and he comes up and looks at it and says 
you know, pats me on the back, says, you know, you're an American. That's pretty good. So, okay. So we wait until they're back in the office, which was quite late. I think I had to stay late for that. And the editor did as well. Um, although he went up to the bar and got drunk. Um, and um, we call Australia, which is a big deal in those days and put them on the speakerphone. And Trevor says, um, you know, we got your telex and um, about not not using Mike on uh, any other cricket story. He says, yeah, bloody right, mate. And I said, well, you know, we looked at the film. We can't see anything wrong with it. You know, what, what's the problem? He says, oh, there's nothing wrong with it, but he's a bloody yank, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, there was my first experience of prejudice. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and uh so anyway yeah broadcasting, yeah pardon me you do get some of that in in broadcasting did, oh yeah did yeah did, you know you american find... you know yeah. australian voices are fine on british tv um because it's the same sort of sporting mentality and but um america you know american voices doing cricket or would be pretty much on un, unheard of and um it's 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 strange because at sky for a while um, I was the host because they thought they needed to have an American host on the American football, but they didn't need to have an American analyst. So Nick Halling was the analyst and we had already worked at screen sport in the opposite roles. Nick would do play by play or hosting and I would do it analysis, which, which worked out better, but, but sky for some reason thought that this was, this was the way that it should be done. And, um, so I would have to, you know, if I would ask Nick a question, this is where I learned the, the Nick Halling technique was if you were asked a question you didn't want to, or couldn't answer, you simply gave whatever answer you wanted to a non-existent <laughs> question. <laughs> and, and, and then the host had to play along with that as if that had been the, the question you'd asked. It's a good, it's a good technique to know. So, so that was the, the break number one. And the break number two came when I was working for major league baseball and we had a contract with screen sport. And I asked them what we could do to help, you know, to make their show better. And the first thing the guy, the two guys, the producer and the um, program director said to me um, was, can you get us a better announcer, a better analyst? The guy we have is awful. I said, yeah, <laughs> can't argue with that. I wasn't, I wasn't really going to say anything because it's not my, you know, not my business. So I, I, I tried to do that, you know, by, by going to the, you know, calling the States and, but the expense was too much, you know, they couldn't, Screen Sport, I don't know if you remember, but Satellite Sports Channel in the early days, very low budget. They couldn't really afford to bring someone over for an entire baseball season, you know, and, and pay them yeah. to do one or two games a week. So it, then one of them asked me if I could do it. And I said, well, you know, I've done quite a bit of stuff at at, um, at uh, UPITN. I, I voiced over a weekly documentary show. I, I did a lot of reporting. Um I had done a little bit of stuff while I worked for ABC, American television in ABC sports, but they had a no, um, no moonlighting clause in the contract. So um, it was mostly, I did a bit of writing on the side, but, but not, and a couple of like commercial voiceovers where no one would know necessarily it was me. Um, so I said, sure, if, you know, if it's okay with my bosses and it was okay with them because I was working for baseball and this was helping to sell the product. Um, so that's where I got started with screen sport. And then, a couple of years I did football for them when they picked up American, the NFL, or no, they picked up the world league um, in its second year uh, in London, 1992. And Nick and I did games live from Wembley and we did a lot of games off tape for the rest of the league. And then when it came back in 95 with sky, um, 
Charlie Balchin, who was producing it then, had hired Nick. And they were looking around for someone to do color. And Nick said, you know, Mike played football in college and, and he did, you know, he did the um, World League with me. And so I wound up doing that first season with Nick. We did two live games every week, um, which would be um, going to Germany normally. And I think once or twice to Barcelona um, on Saturday and then flying back to London on Sunday morning and going um, either out to um, out to wherever the games were, Twickenham or whatever stadium they were using, not Twickenham, um, White Hart Lane um or up to scotland uh so we would you know connect we'd we'd take a 6 30 flight out and connect at at uh, heathrow and go up to scotland and get there and you know kind of roll in not too long before game time and do that but that was so much fun and that really was my great learning experience in football because those years with with the world league you had such great access um, to players and coaches. And I had a pretty good relationship with a couple of the coaches, um, you know, including Jim Kreiner in Scotland, who we were doing all the time. So that was good to have. And I just learned so much listening to them, talking to them, watching tapes sometimes with them if I had time. Um, and then, of course, the players were always happy to talk. They weren't, you know, they weren't NFL players being kept under control by the um, by the team and the, and the team PR people and very, you know, and, and busy with their time. They, they were guys who were happy to have the attention. Uh, obviously, the people in charge of, of the teams wanted as much publicity as they can and were willing to help. And, and you, you know, I learned a lot from them. And it was really where I got started on um, paying attention to the fringe guys, the borderline guys in the league. And I found, you know, every year I look at, I look at uh, sleeper picks from the NFL guys from small schools. I look at the guys who don't get drafted when they sign with teams. I try to, you know, find out about the ones at least I think might have a chance in the league. And, and that just seemed to help me so much when I started doing NFL commentary first briefly for sky and then over on channel five, because a lot of these guys I knew backstories of, and um, I could reference them. And, and the, to me, there's, you know, the sound of somebody who obviously doesn't know anything about the player <laughs> who made the, made the play is always really, <laughs> it's always a real dead point in a game. Um, you know, you understand sometimes when, when there's that hesitation before the spotter, because most guys will have spotters, um, points out who made the tackle or who made the catch. Um, and you know, you often can't see it, um, from where you're sitting or if you're doing a game off tube, um, and you have, you have to kind of wait, but it, you know, there's that, those are strange awkwardnesses when you're, when you're calling a game. Um, and you know, and what a great catch by, and you're waiting for the guy to stand up and, you know, turn his back to the cameras so you can see his number or, you know, or at least see something you can recognize him by, um, the perils of announcing. But that's interesting, Mike, because one of the questions that I had for you is I can tell a lazy announcer from a good announcer. And you've just given a great summary of what a lazy announcer, you know, you can find them out. Was it a conscious thing for you that you didn't want to be in that category that you, you, oh, know, yeah. you wanted to gather the information? Ab absolutely. I mean, not, not conscious in the sense that I wanted to, you know, but, but conscious in the sense that I always, you know, everything I've done, I've, I've always tried to prepare. Um, when you're writing, you have to kind of, you know, 
prepare and research and and know what you're talking about any when you're you know when you're writing journalism um so it just seemed like the natural thing to do and i was lucky to start with nick because nick took it very seriously as well and you know we would come down for breakfast um before before the games on saturday say and and um he would have made out a flip chart uh of his own and and i would just go down and quiz him on the numbers you know and so after a couple of games, you knew the numbers of the players without having to look uh, because because you'd gone through that. And whenever I do things, I try I try to do the same thing. When I did like Olympic basketball, second time through the round robin, I wasn't having to look at many players um, not on the on the chart to to remember what their names were. And it wasn't that I thought I was going to be a good announcer. I just didn't want to be a bad and i mean you know I won't, anybody can do that you know your vision of the game your understanding of the game um your your ability to communicate that that's that's where good and bad announcers kind of fall apart but anybody can can know who the players are and what about them and you know so there's no point in skipping that and then trying to wow everybody with, with the rest of your stuff and i agree with you you can always tell who hasn't done the homework um it doesn't necessarily make them a bad announcer but but you can tell it's interesting because, I mean, you've done both roles, which is unusual. You know, you've been the lead and you, you've been colour. Which do you prefer? Which do you feel you're more comfortable in? Uh, that's a good question because um, I really enjoy doing play-by-play. Um, although on football and baseball, I would rather do colour. Um, because there's more time. Colour's easier on football. <laughs> <laughs> um, because you do have a little chance to see and think about what, what's coming on. And, and if you're really good, when I was doing live games with Nick, um, one of the directors was a guy called Ken Fouts, who did uh, NFL and Major League Baseball for years in the States, uh, for mostly for NBC. And Kenny was great. Uh, so you would be you would get from the truck, the producer would say, OK, we're going to give you the the replay of that of that fumble up the middle and then ken would come in your ear and go you're going to see on the replay that it's 50, it's 53 the linebacker who just from behind just gets his arm in between the his uh, the runner's arm and the ball and then when the replay comes you say oh yeah and you know and that was bart scott got his um got his hand in you know you could barely see it but he gets his hand in and, and really almost punches the ball out in that close and everybody thinks oh he's smart <laughs> and, and and you're getting yeah, but you're getting a lot of help there and um and baseball i liked because you have more time to talk and you don't have to i did a game at the oval when i was working for major league baseball we staged it was supposed to be two games but one got rained out between mets and red sox minor league players right this was 93 i think and i did the television for sky with bud harrelson who was a who was coaching the Mets, uh, was a coach with the Mets and he was there and he was a former shortstop in the big leagues. And I was doing the play-by-play, he was doing the color and I was calling the pitches as they came in and he was correcting me on every pitch. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say, a oh, slider off the corner. He said, no, cut fastball, cut fastball, uh, change up, no curve. <laughs> I, so I started going like breaking ball, <laughs> off, speed, off speed, you know, and just like, I'm just going to back off. <laughs> um, but, you know, I've done... I've done football by myself off tube for Eurosport. So you're sitting in a studio and, you know, you're watching the game on a, 
usually fairly small monitor. Um, and that's very difficult to do. Um, and I've done um, that the same kind of thing on Olympic basketball uh, I did in, in Rio um, and, and for the Paralympics as well, which I did enjoy. But um, I think I prefer on basketball to do play by play. When I did it with John Amici in the 2012 Olympics for the BBC and also for the Olympic Channel, which, which is what I did it for in Rio, that was great. I mean, that was just hugely fun to work work with someone who was really smart and um, could almost lead you where he wanted to go and could pick up on what you wanted to say. And you didn't have that kind of battle you sometimes hear between play-by-play -play men trying to sound smart and color commentators trying to stop them from interfering in their territory, um, which is always kind of awkward, I, I think. And I've done a bit of ice hockey, um, in between the Paralympics and the Olympics in Rio, I literally flew back to London, went to Riga, and did Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So I did four days of ice hockey, an Olympic qualifying tournament with four teams um, by myself doing the whole thing. And I love doing play-by-play -play on ice hockey um, because it's so fast. It's so fast and it's so difficult, Mike. I mean, I think people don't quite get... I mean, I've done it once on Radio Scotland. We did a, a, a game in Glasgow and I just couldn't believe the sheer and utter speed of it. What, what's key for that? Yeah, um, concentrate. Well, yeah, first is knowing. I, I did one in, in, in for Eurosport off tube in Paris. So this would have been in Japan. Um, was it Sapporo? Or it was like 90... Five, 4.95. Anyway, um, I, I showed up and, and it was like the first, I got there about an hour before the first game on the, on the Eurostar. And um, the first game was Kazakhstan against Austria. And they had given me nothing beforehand. And so I'm, you know, I'm on their computers going crazy, trying to get the rosters and find out something about the players. There was one player whose name I recognized because I knew he'd been drafted by the Montreal Canadien. Um, and when the match started, the uniforms were so weird that you couldn't barely see the numbers. <laughs> oh. So I was really struggling there. And, and again, when you do after a while, you know, when I did this tournament in Riga, the second games I didn't have to look too often and it wasn't a question of numbers. I was being, I was able to recognize guys by the way they skate, the, their builds, um, you know, it was helmets. So it's not, it's not that easy, but, but you tend to, to, to pick up on the, on that kind of stuff. Even in football, you pick up on, on that kind of stuff. And then by the third round of games, it, it was fine. I was doing it naturally, but the, you do miss things um, no matter how good you are, even the best announcers, Sometimes it's hard to see a deflection in front of the net, for example. Um, you know, oftentimes, oftentimes you, you can't see. But, but generally when I'm doing play-by-play, -play, I tend to watch the, watch the field or the, or, the, or the ice or the court rather than watch the screen because I just think you see much more that way. Um, and if you you have to follow the ball to an extent but you try not to you try to see what's um what what's uh what's happening around that and i was doing the world university games in austria one year and in the hockey there was 
um, I'm trying to remember which teams, it doesn't matter, uh, but one were the Russians and they were two men down. So that, um, and a guy just did a vicious, vicious slash. And the referee was right below me. And he went and brought his whistle up to his mouth and then put it back in his pocket. And I said to the guy who was doing the color, it was a Canadian um, coach. And I said, did you see that? I said, that was such a bad, the referee took the whistle out and then put it back in his pocket. Um, you know, I, I can't believe that. And from the truck, the, the Austrian director, Werner, um, goes, we have this, we have this on, on tape. <laughs> I, get I, I get it for you <laughs> and next thing you know we're, we're watching the replay and you see exactly what i said you know that the, the guy brought the whistle up and then said oh no i can't give him another penalty and put it put it back and Werner went on to direct all the red bull air shows and and things like that he, he may be one of the best director i've ever worked with <laughs> and i only got to work with him once it, it's quite, I mean, you do need that support cast. You often feel, you know, you're on that person at the top, at the front, you know, people hear the voice and things, but there is such an importance in the support cast around you. I could take this in two or three ways, uh, directions, but I, I do want to just track back a little bit quickly to sure. talk about the time of the Scottish Claymores and the success they had. I mean, some people don't realise just how long the World League actually ran, Mike. I mean, it really was the building block for the NFL in Europe. Yeah. Um, I mean, my my simple take on World League NFL Europe is that the problem was it was supposed to serve two different functions, one of which was to develop players, which I think it did really well um, and would have done better had more teams bought into the system. Um, but the Claymores were a good example. They sent an awful lot of guys to good careers in the NFL. Um, Marco Rivera, Joe Andrusi, Cornell Green, uh, you know. Yo-Yo um, um, Murphy, of course, was successful. Yo had a brief yeah. brief one and was good in Canada. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm trying to think safety, um, Denver Broncos. Um, I'm drawing a blank, but um, George uh, Coghill. Don't Hall, of course. Dante, Dante Hall, of yeah. course, yeah. yeah, a famous one. I was really disappointed when I saw a short feature on Dante Hall that really didn't make enough of what of his time in, in the league. But but that was one function. The other function was to promote the NFL, and it was less successful at that. Um, partly for the same reason that the um, that the NFL um, exhibition games, preseason games, fizzled out fairly quickly. Um, after, you know, being hugely successful, excuse me, when they first started, um, you know, people, as it got, the game got more exposure on television stuff, people wanted to see the real thing. And, um, and for various reasons, the London and Scotland franchises didn't really do as well as we would have hoped they would. Um, they did well, but they couldn't break to the next level. I don't know yeah. how many times I heard people, journalists in both Britain and Scotland say to me, well, you know, we can't give it any coverage. They only get like 10,000 people a game. And I said, well, you know, how many rugby teams get 10,000 people a game? And, and at that point, there was like one or two in rugby league and one in rugby union who, who were getting more. Um, and they said, oh, well, that's different. You know, I said, well, it's not different. We're, we're talking about the, you know, and, and when the Claymores won the World Bowl at Murrayfield, and um, 
it was a legit 39,000 crowd. It wasn't, it wasn't like those 60,000 crowds in the first year of the monarchs when they were, you know, giving away loads of free tickets, which yeah. I had no problem with. I mean, that's how you, you know, that's how you see your sport. That was fine. But the, the crowd at Murrayfield that day was, was a legitimate 39,000. And I thought, here we go. You know, next season, the Claymores are going to be drawing 20,000 a game. You know, we're going to keep a lot of those people because it was a great world bowl. I mean, not, not only because the Claymores won, and so you sent the fans home happy, but it was a fantastic game. I mean, it was a really great advertisement for the sport. And, you know, and we went up for the first game the next year, and it was back to the same, like, 10,000, 11,000 people. And, you know, and, and I just thought, where'd those other 28,000 people go? Don't any of them want to come back and see, you know, see it again? And, and that was a disappointment. And the same thing kind of held true in... Um, in London, in London, um, not helped by the fact that they, you know, they moved to different venues um, almost annually um, and, and were never as successful as that very first Monarchs team that won the World Bowl had been. So that that was also a, a kind of, of disappointment. But um, I think time has shown the NFL need a development league. I don't think they would bring it back in Europe uh, because of the cost. They'd probably do something in Florida or some other states with no right to work laws. Um, and um, the cost was not that great. You know, if, if you broke down the, the 30 million a year or so that the NFL spent by team, it's less than a million a team. Um, when you think that the players would have, you know, the owners of that, say 850,000, the owners would be giving a large chunk of that to the players anyway, because they get that. That's the revenue sharing breakdown um, of their profits. So the expense would, you would make that up if you got one or two players at minimal, at minimum salary, who otherwise you would have had to hire a guy at say twice minimum salary. Or if you got injury settlements with a couple of guys when they got to camp, um, because you knew you knew that. So, you know, it wasn't a huge expense if you bought into the system. The problem was not enough teams bought into the system. And then, you know, I was very disappointed when when Roger Goodell came in. It was one of the first things he did was sort of cancel the NFL Europe season. And three of the six teams at the end um, could basically break even on expenses at the gate. Um, Frankfurt, Rhine in in Dusseldorf and and Hamburg was going to be very successful um as they as they went on but they never found three other places where they could do the same thing Amsterdam and Berlin you know never never could Barcelona never could um and as we see London and London and, and Scotland didn't and um but full full credit to Commissioner Goodell it was the right call in the way that the NFL was going and, and the games in London have been a huge success. They've made the league a lot of money, which makes the owners happy. And you're not, you're not hearing the dissent from the owners, except the kind of mild grumblings if their team has to travel um, and do it. But basically it's been a huge success. And, and um, you know, I, I don't begrudge them that I'd like to see them do a development league. And in, in, even if it wasn't in the U S because I think it would be good for the game. They would get a better quality of player out of that and and there's always players who require just that extra bit of time to you know to get up to speed with the game to find the right position to get a second chance at a team that wants them as opposed to a team that maybe doesn't want them um and and basically any player who was sent to the nfl europe with the exception of a few guys 
who who were um, assigned by the teams for specific reasons. But most guys were sent to prove what they couldn't do as opposed to prove what they could do. They'd already been scouted and evaluated. Um, and so they said, well, this guy can't do that. This guy can't do that. They got, yeah. they got to NFL Europe and sometimes they proved what they could do. And, and one of the things I always say, and, and I've learned it watching some really good coaches is that really good coaches don't ask players to do what they can't do. They, they scheme to put players in a position to do what they can do. Um, you know, and if they have to put a player in a position to do what he doesn't, he can't do, they ha- they know they have to live with the consequences of that. It, it, it is interesting because we do want the game to succeed and it, it has been tremendously successful. Has the success in, of the London games taken you by surprise or was this always something you thought they could make work? Um, when they, when the league when the league decided to do regular season games, I did think it would be successful. I didn't think it would be as successful as it, as it has been. Um, Because you really do see a deep sort of at least casual following for the sport. Um, This has been helped by all the years it's been on TV, obviously, but you know, they, they have now a strong following, I would think. Um, that they can depend on regularly to buy tickets uh, for games, and it, and it's probably somewhere between I don't know five and seven fifty thousand, and then there's a, a a much bigger casual market who, if the thing comes up right, if it's a team they like or they like the sound of it or they have the time, then they'll go to a game. But you know, between that, there's there's a big market for the NFL um, here, and uh, I I would I'm always curious to think about what will happen if they, when they try to do it elsewhere. I mean, London's got huge advantages, language, um, successful television, uh, a staff here in London that can do a lot of the legwork, um, you know, on site uh, every year. And so, you know, we, we talk about being a, a team here and, and basing a team here, but my, my feeling right now is, you know, if it's not broken, why fix it? Um, and uh, I can see various problems if you have a, a dedicated London team. Um, and- yeah, I mean, I, I've always thought, Mike, you know, that, you know, we are passionate fans. And the great thing about the London games, which people mention, is you see, you know, every team represented. And as you say, if it's if it's not broke, you know, yeah. don't, 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 don't tinker with it you don't have to go tribal on the London games. You know, that's yeah. why you see jerseys from every team when you go to the game. Um, I wonder what happens because basically all those fans were taught, we just were talking about have their own favorite teams. And as you just said, they're very loyal fans. It's, it's the tradition in this country. Um, you don't, you don't change your allegiance. Uh, so whether they would pick up on London as their own team or whether it would just be a fallback position is a really good question when you get to the eighth game of the year at home in December and your team is foreign is uh, four and uh, 11 and has no chance of making the playoffs and you haven't sold 80,000 season tickets, you know, how many people are actually going to come out for that game? Um, and I think that's a, a very real kind of problem. Um, and, uh, I'm not, I wouldn't want to risk it, to be honest, uh, un, unless I thought 
I could, you know, guarantee that it would it would be successful. But but the NFL is step by step, you know, testing testing the waters for that, seeing first off what's technically possible, what they can make work. Because logistically, it's a huge thing. You know, it's such yeah. a huge exercise. And um, there were some ways it would be easier if you had one team, and there were some ways it would be more difficult. And then you have ancillary issues to to think about, like um, you know taxes and and families and and residency and all that kind of crap um the nfl the nfl can handle that you know that that's the kind of stuff that they've got the the clout to be able to do and um if you have a london mayor and both you know the last two london mayors have been very much in favor of this um in fact i think uh, all three of the last London mayors have been in favor of it. Um, you can you can make that work. You know you 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 can figure out ways ar- around that. But um, you know I, I wouldn't I wouldn't begrudge it if it happened. But you know I'm I'm really happy with this because I like seeing various teams uh, coming over and you know getting getting a good look uh, up close. I'm really sad it's not going to happen this year. You know, I mean not least because. Those were the only games I did last year. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, in broadcast. So you know, I'm I'm already um, I'm already have four big holes in my schedule. Yeah, no, I, I sympathise with you on that. That that's for sure. In terms of of broadcasting the NFL, the, the NFL have always relied on television to sell. Um, you know, CBS and NBC. Of course, Fox came along and really, you know, exploded one or two networks because they saw the value of it. I mean, tell us from an American perspective, I mean, to lose NFL games from your network is is almost unthinkable. And is that what drives the price up? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and it, it's a loss leader in a sense. Uh, it was for Fox because Fox's strategy in in getting getting the league and and paying big money for John Madden and Pat Summerall was to force better stations in each area to pick up the Fox network in order to have the NFL. In in some of the big cities, Fox was on smaller, uh, lower power, low fr- uh, or UHF channels. Right. And this was this was a way of getting those channels to change their network affiliation so they could get American football. And that work worked like a charm uh, for Fox. When I worked for ABC, um, the years we basically lost money on the NFL, even though Monday Night Football was always the top 10, usually a top five rated program. Um, but they made money every year they had the Super Bowl. And the profit they made on the Super Bowl was enough to cover the <laughs> to cover the losses in, in the three in the three year. You know, they got once every three years in the rotation. It covered those losses. But even if it had lost, it would have been they would have thought it was worth the money as a promotional vehicle. Um, you know, when you're getting when you're winning Monday night, which Monday night football did, and you're at the beginning of the new season of tv shows it's the best opportunity you have to promote your network tv shows you're going to get the biggest audience um i always i always say that the national people say is baseball still the national sport i say well it's a national pastime the national sport of america is television and american football is the best sport on television um it fits television better than any other sport it's it's built for the screen it's designed for the screen, you know, and ABC were, were the first to sort of realize that rune Arledge, you can do stuff. 
it was the first time that sport was being brought to you to show you what you could not see if you were in the, the best seat in the stadium. Instead of trying to recapitulate that experience, they were trying to bring you closer to the game. Um, and because you had the breaks between plays, they could do that with replay. It's where the isolated camera came in, where, you know, you would originally, it would be like one camera. They would put it on a receiver who they thought might get the pass. And if you struck lucky and now, now they've got so many cameras, they can ISO any number of guys. Um, but the instant replay, the isolated camera, the graphic, the graphic packages, all this kind of stuff developed through covering American football to the point now where, you know, it really is the national sport and pastime watching American football on television. The Super Bowl is the biggest holiday in America. You know, it, it's bigger than Christmas or even Thanksgiving because more people are doing the same thing at the same time. Um, and you could say, okay, well, more people are sitting down for Thanksgiving dinner at the same time. Well, they're not because it's staggered over the four time zones. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I mean, in, in fairness, half the people having Thanksgiving dinner are watching the, whatever the game is, <laughs> you know, like the men are sitting there kind of leaning backward to look at the television in the other room while they're, while they're eating their Turkey. Um, which is one of the reasons why I think they should give up. They shouldn't be putting three games on Thanksgiving. You know, it should be like one game and give the rest of the, give the family a break um, and have your Thanksgiving dinner together. But um, losing that would be monstrous for the networks if they don't get uh, football and it would be monstrous for the NFL who, you know, who depend on that network revenue, um, for their whole financial, financial basis. And, and it would require, you know, a, a um, um, uh, a look, a look by both sides at the, at the basic, the CBA, the basic agreement and the revenue sharing agreement. Um, they would have to renegotiate with the networks, whether they add another year of the contract, whether they get whatever season is played at a discount rate or, um, or a pro rata um, yeah. you know, with their sponsors who have already bought the commercial time on those, on those programs. It's, it's going to be a big thing. And I think, you know, they really are. I am, I know they have a plan right now, but I'm sure they have a couple of contingency plans in place for what happens when plan a doesn't work. Um, if coronavirus gets in the way, um, which frankly, none of us know um, what will happen and, and whether it can be avoided, you know. Um, and it was why I knew before they canceled it, I knew they would cancel the London games because there's so much you can't control in terms of a virus and in terms of the national reaction to it, the government reaction to it in America, the state reaction to it you really can't afford to be counting on having four games in another country where those situations might be completely different. And it's a whole different set of parameters you can't control. Um, so I knew that those games right from the start were going to be terribly vulnerable. And, and that, that's the way it turned out. Um, it wasn't really a surprise. It's very sad. We have a relationship with, with broadcasters, especially in NFL. It's only a sort of 16-game season. You feel you get to know people. They're on the screen for about three hours. Who are the good ones? Who are the bad ones for you at the moment? And, and you don't have to name names if, if you don't want to, but who impresses you in the booth? Well, I mean, all, all those years of... Um... Of, of doing Sunday and Monday night football, you, you tend to get pretty good ones um, through that run. And, and uh, you know, 
Pat Summerall was great. You know, John Madden was great. Uh, John Madden was so influential. There were there were so many kind of proto or neo Maddens who came along after that. Um, back in the old days, I used to you know really like Ray Scott a lot, who did CBS and and did Green Bay Packers games. Um, and and there were there were other guys um, who I liked too. Al Michaels, who I worked with at ABC um, before I was on the other side of the, of the camera announcing, is really one of the great announcers, I think, of all time, not just in football, but but he's he's such a pro and, and he, he's so good. If, if you if you want to see how good he is, go back to the O.J. Simpson chase and find ABC's coverage where they Al Al happened to live <laughs> just around the corner from OJ. Um, <laughs> and they, they call, I think it was Peter Jennings was anchoring it and, and they call Al, you know, and start asking him about the whole, and Al just flop flips right in and people don't realize, you know, like sports guys in a way are a lot better than, than a lot of news people, especially news bunnies. And I don't, I mean that of both sexes. Um, people who expect the producer in news. And I, I, when I worked for ABC, I saw, I saw it firsthand, you know, people whose producers do a lot of hard work and, and basically get all that done and write them a script, you know, and, and all they really have to do is deliver it. Um, but um, that's not everybody, obviously. And there were, I'm, I've known and worked with, and I've been friends with a load of really good foreign correspondents who put their lives on the line, which is something sports guys don't have to do. So I'm not saying that about them. But, what, but when you're talking about these kind of local local events and stuff, sports guys have to react to what's happening um, and be coherent and, and be smart about it if they're any good. Um, you know, and, and they can't just read press releases and, and stuff like that. So you get, you get them to be very good reporters in a lot of ways. And there's a couple of guys, even in Britain, you know, who went from sports to be, uh, Ed Villiami is, is a really good example. He was a great sports writer on, um, the Guardian and Observer, and then went in, you know, just became a really great pol political writer as well. Um, but right now, I mean, um, I liked, I liked Collinsworth when he, when he came up. Um, he, I think now he's starting to, people are starting to get tired of, of the way he, he does that, which is kind of a natural reaction, but I still think he's good doing the games. When we were doing their games, Michaels and Collinsworth on channel five, I used to get upset, um, because we would, I would say, um, to the, to the, um, to the gallery yeah could you get that play um and we'll do it after the commercial and then they'd come out you know we would um abc would do it or whoever it was nbc would do it um before we could do it and i'd go oh crap yeah. <laughs> but but you know i felt good about it because obviously we were seeing the same things or you know wanting to talk about the same things um you know tony romo obviously has had a huge impact and and it makes you wonder why other quarterbacks who were in that position didn't try to do the same thing because it's in retrospect it seems so obvious um you know that here's a guy who's used to watching a lot of tape and and they always tell you how much tape they've watched phil sims was great at that you know um <laughs> after the play was over well you know we saw on tape that they would do that kind of thing well why did you tell us beforehand you know or or we were talking to him uh friday night in the meeting and he told us you know he really would like to run that down well why didn't you tell us that before? 
before the play happened. Um, but Romo's willing to do that, you know, put himself out on the line and, and, and he, he's right more often than not. And, uh, you know, I, I think that's real, that's really exciting. Um, there's, there's a, I don't know. I'm, I'm not in a position to criticize guys, you know, by name because I'm not that good. Um, a lot of the stuff I do, I'm well aware that I would never be able to get away with in the States. Um, you know, especially in those late night days on, on channel five and channel four. Um, but were, be... you, were you not aiming at a slightly different audience? Though? Oh yeah. You're, no, you're, I, you're, that's able, why. you're able to tailor that, isn't it? Cause I, yeah. that, I think that's one of the things that attracted a lot of people is that you found the way of communicating without saying, I know it all. I'm going to tell you, you found that unique way of actually okay. making almost a conversation. Yeah, thank you, because that's basically what I was aiming, aiming to do, and and you know, and also to keep it entertaining, um, to to keep people watching at two o'clock in the morning, <laughs> three o'clock in the morning, um, even if the game wasn't that good, and you knew that they were, you know, once the game became one-sided or whatever, you were going to lose lose most of your audience. But um, you know, there there's certain lines you you can't really uh, cross, and and I've had I've literally had producers worry about this recently. Um, again, no names, but, but, um, I did a, a thing where they, they wanted to listen to it first before it went out because they were worried about what I might say that would offend people politically. And, and, um, I said to them, look, you know, you've seen me on BBC, uh, the shows I do on BBC are large, are, uh, in large part different from the ones I did on channel four or five. I still make stupid jokes. Um, you know, I still come in with, with, with little quips or something like that, but I, what my, the range of my conversation is very much narrowed and, and, um, you know, I, I'm doing what they, what they would like me to do. And, um, that's, that's, that's the way you work, you work in broadcasting and, and certainly doing the games with OC and Jason, you know, is, is just a huge pleasure because I'm basically trying to keep up with them who, you know, not only know the game really well, but also have their own camaraderie. Um, and especially when Mark is, when Mark is doing the games with them, you know, they do those two shows a week all season. I'm like, it's like I'm an outsider in this club. I'm the fourth wheel, the fourth wheel and three points determine a plane. Um, and, uh, you know, but it, yeah, I, it's great because I don't have any trouble. Um, it, it's, I fit in uh, quite, quite well, quite naturally. And, and that's, because of the guys and, you know, and Mark being a really good host with that. And, um, but I just find, I just love doing that because, you know, it, it ups your game basically. Um, it, you know, it forces you to be a little bit sharper, to pay better attention, to, to think more and you learn and you learn as well um, along the way. And I, I think I should also just say that that show they do, you know, we were talking about the popularity of, of NFL in this country on, and on TV and um for years, NFL tried various formats to get a football show aimed at the non-fan audience. Yeah. Um, and, you know, in fact, I used to hear not, you know, I started to hear, I should say, various, various people talking about the cult following uh, from on Channel 5 and Channel 4, you know, and they were trying to get away from the cult. And I would just say, well, 
you know, it's not my cult. <laughs> yeah. It's an NFL. If they didn't like the game, they wouldn't watch. No one's going to watch to watch me, you know, especially at three o'clock in the morning. Um, you know, if they didn't like the game, that's what, that's what we're there for. So, I mean, I think that's, that's fairly, fairly silly, but they tried lots of formats. There was going to be one. I was actually, they were going to go on channel five at some drive time, like six 30 in the evening and I was, there were two or three groups bidding for the contract. And I was in one with Ginger Productions. And I would have done the show with Ginger Spice, Martin O'Fire, a guy called Jamie Nails, who played for the Miami Dolphins, who was a, a tackle about six foot six and about 340 pounds. Why they had got or where they had got Jamie Nails, I had no idea. And yeah. some guy who did the doctor slot on one of the morning shows on one of the networks, which um, I did, I don't know who he was. And we were going to get the con. I was told by various insiders that we were going to get the contract. I was really looking forward to that because I'd never met a Spice Girl before. <laughs> um, I'd met Martin before, <laughs> um, so that wasn't as exciting. He's a nice guy, you know. But, um, but. Um, then the guy who was the head of programming or head of sport at channel five moved to channel four. So that the idea went uh, with him uh, and they couldn't move, they couldn't get him, you know, they couldn't get into channel four um, with, with the same idea. So that went by the wayside, but that might've worked better. I was going to be the stato kind of person in that, right. in that show, um, which I was more than willing to do, you know, and uh they tried various other things and various other people, none of whom I thought were very successful um, and they couldn't get the balance right. And, and they finally got it right with, with OC um, and Jason and, and Mark. And, and the interesting thing was when the idea first came up, um, they had called me, uh, the production company had called me and asked me if I would be interested in doing it. And I said, sure. And then not at the last minute, but but sort of after the contract was in, they they called me and said, "Look, we're going in a, a sort of different direction." You know, I said, yeah, "Okay, yeah, thanks." Um, and as I watched the show, I I saw what they were trying to do, and they did it. And you can never have a complaint, you know, when a when a producer decides this is what I want to do and makes it work, and it's good, you know, and it's it's what the audience needs. Um, you know, I would lo would love to be involved in that. It's 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 such a good program. It's so it's so much fun to watch. Um, and I know some of the hardcore old fans kind of complain about it because they think it's it's simple or something. But I I just think it's it's a lot of fun, and that's what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to, and, it, and you see where BBC schedule it. You know, they get it on at that time where guys are going to be watching it coming home from the pub or, or after watching match of the day or, you know, whatever, but, but you're going to get that kind of uh, audience that will appreciate the, the sporting camaraderie, the, the, the humor in it um, and the excitement of it. And um, you know, it, it's just, that attracts a lot of people to the game. I think that's been part of the recent success. Why, you know, why it keeps, it keeps getting bigger because you're getting those, casual fans and casual fans are what everybody in television is aiming at. You know, you know, a program, any program will sell to a certain audience, but to be a real success, you have to expand that audience out to a wider base. And, and that's what that, that's what that show's aimed at doing. And, um, and I think it does it very well. 
broadcasting itself i mean you've you've done so much uh, across so many things but you also you you've done writing people might not realize you, know, you you've done a lot of obituary work the you know bbc's <laughs> briefs lives and things does it help you as a, in your sports commentary that you have an overview of life if you like You're, it's not it's not necessarily an obsession because you've got a wide range of a focus well i try to pay attention you know um, to what's going on. Um, if you like obituaries, there was one in the Daily Telegraph yesterday of Herbert Stemple, who was the other half of the pair on in the movie Quiz Show, uh, who fixed the Quiz Show 21 in the oh, 1950s. Yeah, yeah. Um, he was the one who lost to Charles, Charles Van Doren. Um, I wrote that. <laughs> uh, they're not bylined in the Daily Telegraph, but but I wrote that one, um, and it was fascinating because it, it, it had to be a short one because uh, they're overwhelmed with obituaries at the moment, um, and uh, so I couldn't really go into kind of the things I wanted to talk about. One of which was that Herbert Stemple and Mark Van Doren were like it was like a forerunner of the Kennedy-Nixon debates. Um, Stemple looked sweaty and 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 dark on the screen and, and Van Doren's light and light suit and, you know, cool and calm. Um, and this the second one was that Van Doren was literally an American literary aristocrat. Um, and uh, Stemple was this Jewish guy from Queens uh, who went to CCNY and was, and was really smart, um, kind of an autodidact. And um, that was the point where American TV started moving from if you use comedy as an example, the the big comedies in the early 50s were things like The Honeymooners with Jackie Gleason, where he was a bus driver in New York and they lived in a tenement flat. And Life of Riley, where he was a guy from Brooklyn who had moved out to work in the factory, the airplane factories in Los Angeles, um, things like that. And they moved to a sort of suburban affluent style of, of uh, comedies. Uh, Father Knows Best and Leave It to Beaver and the Donna Reed show and things like that, where, the, where you hardly knew what the father did. <laughs> he right. just kind of smoked a pipe and had a tie on and went out and then came back for dinner. And, you know, and everybody had lots of money. And mom was in a kind of party dress, you know, and pearls while she cooked dinner. And my mother was never like that, you know. And, um, <laughs> and uh, this is kind of what the quiz program showed you know because the sponsors wanted to attract the audience that would buy the stuff they were selling um so you wanted a, not just an more affluent audience you wanted a more aspirational audience um that would want these these things you know they would want to have a living room that looked like donna reed's living room even though you know it wasn't donna reed's living room it was it was a tv set um and and the other lesson i wanted to go into was that you know quiz shows um, were basically a form of reality television. And people have to start learning that reality television is not real. <laughs> it, yes. <laughs> yeah, it's the opposite of real. <laughs> and why they call it reality, I have no idea. But, you know, but people are saying, not only are people saying lines that the producers have given, given them, they're being coached, they're, you know, it, they're, being, they're following scripts that, that uh, the producers want, you know, want to see. It, it's all fake. And, you know, and if you don't pay attention to that, you wind up with Donald Trump as your president um so but i couldn't get all that into 650 words and still do the guy's life um but anyway to go back to your question which i haven't forgotten um you know i i look at it all as a, a continuum and um the hard part of of announcing 
and I had looked at it from the other side. You know, I worked with most of ABC's announcers and watched how they worked and what they could do and couldn't do. And, you know, some of the really greats, guys like Jim Lampley and Jack Whitaker, um, who were both eloquent speakers uh, who could who could write in their heads if they had to uh, a minute and 30 to introduce some event and have it make sense, have it really be lovely um, and suitable and be, if the producer said, can you do a minute 30, it would be a minute 30. And then I watched guys who had to have a lot of stuff done for them. Um, and uh, when I discovered that I could talk and listen to someone in my ear at the same time, um, I realized I could probably at least do the basics of, of this job. Um, and, uh, and then it was a question of whether I could put my thoughts into a coherent, um, into coherent statements and keep them short and, um, and see it, you know, try to see and get the, get the angle or the storyline that you wanted to do. And writing helps you do that because in writing, I've always found when I was doing nonfiction write journalism, um, or critical writing, you it was easy for me once you decide what it is you want to say. And that doesn't mean the whole story. It means what the point of the story is. And, and I take the kind of same attitude toward uh, football. And I've worked with guys who are better at it than me, much better at it than me, because they can see what the story is play on each play if, the, if needs be um, to an extent that I, I sometimes think I can't, I don't do, or I don't do well enough. I'm, I'm hypercritical of, you know, I hate watching my own shows or anything like that because I really am hypercritical. And half the time it's something that I thought immediately after the words came out of my mouth, I know that there was something I could have said better <laughs> if I'd given myself another two seconds to think about it. Um, and I, so I hate, I hate doing that because, um, um, you, I feel disappointed, you know, it's kind of like not living up to your, to your standards, but, but being able to write and, and my son, who's really intelligent, um, and speaks very well, has a lot of trouble writing and I can't, it's hard for me to convey the idea that when I started writing, I was writing the way I would talk, um, I was writing the way I was thinking and it was not really a, a huge problem to get that down on a piece of paper coherently, um, which meant I was probably thinking in a fairly logical way. Um, we, when I was a kid, we had to learn how to outline, which they don't teach kids nowadays. I taught my son this myself, but you know, when you were writing a paper, you would have point A and then one, and, you know, kind of like a government bill or a contract from, from a phone provider, you know, and, <laughs> um, but, but you had to order your thoughts and, and the main, you know, then when you wrote a paragraph, it was like the first sentence is supposed to state what the paragraph is, is, um, is going to say. And the last one should, should conclude it more or less. And, you know, I got into journalism without ever training for journalism. Um, I actually, I sat an exam at Reuters, I think once, and I didn't get hired, but the guy said, yeah, you write really well. Um, and news writing is slightly different than, other kinds of writing because you have to leave a lot out to get the basic facts and the important facts in. Uh, so, yeah, I think there was, there was a lot of connection between them. And, and there's a famous quote 
by C.L.R. James, who was a cricket writer, um, a great cricket writer. Uh, his book, Beyond the Boundary, is one of the two or three best books about cricket, I think, still. Um, he was a, um, um, a Black guy who came to uh, Britain with Leary Constantine when Leary Constantine was playing in the Lancashire Leagues uh, to write about him. And C.L.R. James wrote the best book about Haiti um, called Black Jacobins about the revolution in Haiti, Toussaint Louverture. And he wrote a book about Melville, which is not the best book about Melville, but it's a good book about Melville. Um, and so, you know, so he was really a, a Renaissance man in a lot of ways. And, and he had a quote at one point, I think when someone asked him about this, you know, about why he didn't concentrate on writing about cricket or something. And he, he was basically quoting Rudyard Kipling um, in another context, but he said, what, what do they know of cricket who only cricket know? And I think Kipling's original was, what do they know of England? Um, who only England know, which I used like hell during the Brexit debates. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, when people ask me about that, that's, that's what I say. I mean, you know, how can you, if you're, if you're going to be talking for two or three hours, um, how do you expect to do it? Well, if you have no, if you have no point of interest or, or focus other than football, um, what you get, I think is is somewhat less entertaining. You know, we do specialize now. The internet has brought you know so much information um, there, and everybody seems to want to know every little every little reference. Um, you know, soon they'll be doing football like baseball. You know, where there's guys now who, who count the rotations on the ball. Um, you know, who who, who measure who, the computers can measure the break on a on a slider or the break on a on a curveball. Um, which I find much less interesting, you know, and the, the pitchers themselves are looking at a video to see where their release point is and, you know, how their body's moving and, and torquing and all that kind of stuff so that they can do it the same way all the time. And I find that much less interesting. I find the, the sort of, he's doing 23.6 miles per hour, um, you know, as the, the dotted line with the ball goes in, I find that somewhat less interesting than than trying to figure out how it was that he got open um or how it was that the quarterback you know knew that's where the ball was going to go um which is one of the things why why tony romo is so good um but but people now are looking more toward that because i think they need to have that time filled with more information and getting information about the game is really the only thing um that comes through and it's why when you have ancillary issues around the game like contract disputes um union union ownership disputes um political things um like colin kaepernick black lives matter the current situation with with george floyd why sometimes i think the debate is somewhat limited um and tends tends to sort of revolve more around people getting um, exercised by a tweet that someone has, ha has issued rather than kind of sitting down and, and taking it in a big picture kind of, um, in a big picture kind of way. Um, but that's just me. I mean, <laughs> I've, well, been lucky I I've been lucky enough to be able to carve out, you know, this, this small niche, um, which gets smaller all the time as I get older. Um, but, you know, but it, it's been great. I went freelance. I stopped working for Major League Baseball in 94, and I've been freelance ever since. And, you know, that's a quarter of a century of being able to 
make a living basically doing this stuff that I really love doing. Um, and, you know, I, I wouldn't give that up for anything. It was a beautiful line that you used to, to sum it up. And I think it is, I think part of your popularity, Mike, is you're a storyteller. You want to inform <laughs> it. And, and genuinely, I mean, I, I wrote down here, you know, media training, because I think it's, it's taking some of the joy out of, of people that are coming through as commentators and color conversation. And I think you, you put it beautifully, you know, if they want it's 23.9 angle, blah, 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 but you want to know why the guy got up and talk about the sport, not, not everything else yeah. that's, that's there. One final question for you, Mike. I mean, you have been to Super Bowl. I just gave you a great out there. <laughs> no, I, 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 know, I was, I, I was I thinking what, that as I, as I said it, I said, oh, there we go. We're done. Yeah. But I've, but I've got <laughs> one, one more question I want to ask you. Sure. And it's probably a little bit formulaic, <laughs> but you, you have been around in terms of, you know, going to Super Bowls and things. What's the one sporting event you haven't been at that's on Mike Carlson's wish list? Ooh. Ooh. <sighs> Something I have, have not done at all, probably. I think it might be a GAA final at Croke Park. Um, and I and I would have said probably a year ago I, um, the football final, but now I wouldn't care if it were the hurling final. Uh, that would be okay with me too. Um, I mean, I lived in Montreal. If 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 the Canadians ever have, the joke used to be that in Mon, you know, if you live in Quebec the Stanley cup comes around more often than Haley's comet. Um, but, but now, nowadays <laughs> I wonder, you know, we're not much different than Nashville now. Um, but if the, if the Stanley cup were to come to Montreal to see like a, a game seven of the Stanley cup in Montreal, I um, would be great, but I have seen hockey in Montreal. Um, you know, so that's kind of, a, it's, it's kind of less, um, less uh, some, and, I'm just trying to think if there's if there's anything else that I really really have missed. You know, I've seen an awful lot of sport. I've been lucky lucky to do that. I've worked at is it ten or eleven Olympic games um, in various capacities, um, and I just you know it, it's it's just so much fun, and and it gives it gives us so much pleasure, and and I think we we've noticed that. Um, We've noticed that uh, during the lockdown, because there hasn't been any sport, um, and uh, you, you you see the whole it fills now. Maybe some people are having better lives, <laughs> or oh, you know what? The problem is that there's nothing else for them to turn to. So you know, if you took away sport, but you let people still do everything else, then all, you know, all of a sudden, you know, families would be doing more stuff together, probably, or you know, um, and it would be great. But now there's nothing nothing else to take its place. But you know, sport has a a real unifying it can be divisive but it has a really unifying um kind of thing and i always joke that it gives guys something to talk about um and i'll give you one more story before i go and i'm gonna have to edit this considerably um but it epitomizes my relationship with my parents and i was living in i've been living in Britain for a long time. I was living in Britain. My parents were in Connecticut and I called them and um, they would, they had an extension phone back in those days. So my father's on the extension, my mother's on the phone and, and we're talking. And um, I think I had just come back. Yeah. I, I would probably just come back from doing the world uh, football world cup in 94. I was doing the games in Chicago 
And um, so my mother asks how my girlfriend is. And I say, well, I don't know. You know, I haven't seen her in a couple of weeks. So there's this minute sort of moment of silence. And my mother says, what did you do wrong now? <laughs> so <laughs> I say, well, I was, I came back from Chicago in the middle of the cup because I had to do a voiceover thing um, for the NBA. And I was so exhausted, I was going to go home that night and then go see her the next day. But I thought, okay, I'll be a mensch. So after the voiceover and all was done, I got a second wind and I went down to her apartment and I was trying to let myself in and the door was on a latch and it wouldn't open. And it made that kind of crashing noise when you when the latch hits and then this voice went what's that <laughs> and she was in bed with another guy so there was silence my mother couldn't think of anything to say the silence continued i wasn't going to break it because i was enjoying it too much and then my father goes did you see the red Sox won 12 in a row <laughs> <laughs> And I thought, oh. yeah, <laughs> working, <laughs> working magic. Yeah, uh, that's right. And that's basically what sports does for us. You know, it gives us that out. <laughs> there's always, there's always going to be something to talk about uh, oh. as long as there is sport. I've never told that story publicly before. So um, <laughs> you've got a real bonus there. It's probably going to be usually embarrassing when people listen to it. But there you go. And what an out that sure. is. Absolutely oh, brilliant. brilliant. Thank you so much for joining us, Mike. It's been an absolute pleasure. It's been a bumper conversation, but it's been thrilling <laughs> to listen to it. So thank you for your time. We really appreciate it. Yeah, I'll tell you, any of the guys I've worked with will tell you, don't get me going. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I have so many other things to ask you. We'll do this again sometime. I'll, I'll be happy to do it again. Just give it a bit of time between, yeah. uh, you know, we'll, get some other people in there. <laughs> we'll, we'll do that. Mike, thanks for your time, mate. That's no, absolutely thanks, Paul. wonderful. Thanks, yeah. Bye-bye. All the best. Take care. Absolutely brilliant here to hear from Mike. I was having some audio issues, so let you do all the talking, but to be perfectly honest, I don't think you even got much of the talking in there. You just press play with Mike and he goes. It's brilliant. I love hearing it. He's absolutely tremendous. Mike is just that wonderful all-rounder. He, he brings the knowledge. He brings the fun. He brings the stories. He brings the passion. And uh, it's just what a terrific conversation. You know, I've got my notes in front of me, camera, and as Mike was answering some of it, I might ask him this. No, no, I might ask him that. There's just so many places you could go. We could have talked for hours, and I'm really, really grateful to Mike for the time he gave us. Yeah, it's great to hear some of the background as well that he's gone through, even some of the stories about the other sports. Uh, I thought his coverage of cricket and <laughs> the stories around that was absolutely brilliant. Uh, and he is great. You know, I, I we've been lucky to have Nat Coombs on. We've had Mike Carlson now. For me as well, I think the coverage that those guys provided when it was Channel 4, Channel 5, absolutely superb. Um, you know, really, really good and a very different way of doing it, a much more British way um, of presenting the sport. And, you know, that's something that is great to hear, certainly, because we try and do this from a, a Scottish point of view. We try and make it inclusive. We I hope that we're not just for Scottish people and certainly looking at the people that download and the geographical output of that. There's people from all over the world listening, which is brilliant, and we love having them. But we always try and keep that slight Scottish lens on things because I, I think that we do look at things in a slightly different way. And then Mike's got that unique sort of situation where he looks at things very differently from an American point of view and from a British point of view, but it just fits so nicely in this country, I think, his style. It does. I mean, the, the thing I like about Mike, and you mentioned that, 
and a couple of other people that we've spoken to is that they take everything seriously in terms of doing all the work, doing all the preparation. You know, at times it might look, you know, Mike just goes on and tells a few stories, but he's got all the preparation there. He's got the knowledge. And you can blag occasionally as a broadcaster, but if you want to be a really good broadcaster, uh, and unless you're, you know, friends with someone or sleeping with a producer, if you want to succeed, you've got to be able to do the work. And that's, you know, for example, exactly, you know, what Mike does, he puts the work in, he puts the effort in, and then it, it looks, almost looks easy at times, and it's anything but, as you know. Yes, indeed, indeed. So any other news items taking your fancy? This has already been a bumper edition. Um, that's what happens when you get Mike Carlson. No, I mean, it was brilliant to, to speak to Mike. I mean, we'll have a look in a couple of weeks' time at, you know, what the fallout is regarding the NFL saying that handled the Colin Kaepernick situation badly. It is a highly complex thing. And, you know, we, we can't discuss that within a minute or two. We might not discuss it in great depth uh, overall because, you know, we're not from America. We're not in that position and we want to concentrate on the sport. But I think... What I think we can say on behalf of NFL Scotland is we don't believe in discrimination for anybody taken as red. And anything that's done to help that and level the playing field for everybody is exactly what we want. Absolutely. You know, um, it is a, an important message um, and one that yeah, we, we can't do justice enough to. Uh, we really can't. Um, it's, there's a lot going on at the moment. It is highly charged, as you say. So uh, we will, we'll see what comes of that in, in the months ahead. Um, but no, that's pretty much everything then for episode 104. Thank you for taking the time to listen. Th- share your thoughts on this episode via Twitter at Scotland NFL and on Facebook by searching for NFL Scotland. We read all your social media post things. We appreciate the good, the bad and the indifferent. Feedback is always welcome. If there's someone you'd like us to try and reach out to and talk to in the world of the NFL, please do suggest them to us. We've already mentioned to you that we're looking at our plans for the season ahead. We are working on something for our week one event, and we hope to have more information on that at the start of July. So stay tuned. That is going to be excellent. Thanks to everybody for joining us. Thanks to Mike Carlson once more. We'll be back soon to talk all things NFL on behalf of Cameron and myself. Bye for now.